On? Yeah, there we go. Um, so we've talked about the idea that um, people get involved in more extreme um, versions of pornography as they go on and it kind of sucks you in. Um, but is, is there an increase in the extreme types of pornography um, because, in, because of an, uh, as of yet, unidentified societal problem that's creating paedophiles or zoophiles? And that goes to anyone who can answer, really. Hello, uh, I just wanted to ask you what, what you think as church leaders, how you should kind of police in the nicest way people that you know are involved in looking at pornography, are doing it in their homes, professing to be Christians, and then they're going out and they're street pastors, they're praying, healing on the streets, they're praying for people in their churches, they're leading Bible studies, and at home their lives are an absolute train wreck. And there's a big disconnect between these two lives they're leading because they're essentially split. Great. Yep, thank you. And, and one here as well, at the front. <coughs> if I sort of dig into my memory, I, I, I can remember a thing called the Obscene Publications Act. Can you tell me what's happened to it? Okay, that's great. So on the first one, I'm going to ask Lisa to start. Do you want to talk about that? Extreme pornography. Um, well, first of all, um, animal, sorry, humans have always had sex in all sorts of different ways. That's not new. Yeah. The porn, um, particularly the high, watching it in uh, from cyberspace, that is something new. And younger and younger and younger, that is new. Um, Gary, probably it would also be good to have you come in. Um, I am aware that sometimes people keep going through all the different, they start here and it just goes worse and worse. And then sooner they end up like Alfred Kinsey, i.e. impotent, like nothing will work. But others seem to have a different trajectory. Um, I'm aware of all those different kinds of porn with animals, with this, 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 whatever. What is new, however, is the identity. This is, I'm a zoophile. I'm a this, I'm a that. That's my identity. And therefore, you all will respect my identity. That, to me, is something new. But also, we can push back on that. Uh, and say, in terms of, let's say, what's being taught to our children, we do not want this taught to our children. Like with kink, we don't want children taught about kink, even if it is your, quote, identity. But Gary, do you want to have a go? I tend to keep it really simple for my clients and just say, as with alcohol or drug addiction, you need an increased amount to keep the same level of high. It is really exactly the same with porn and sex. You've got to find other ways to push the boundaries and take greater risks because the greater risks and exceeding boundaries is what starts the heart pumping and pumps more dopamine, oxytocin, into the body and give you a greater arousal because it won't stay the same. Five years earlier where you had started will not be where you tend to be five years later. And so the boundaries have always been pushed and the increase and the increase. And society, as it seemingly endorses or normalizes certain previously unacceptable levels of behavior, it enables more to go extreme and extreme and extreme. And so 
we see normalizing becoming normal at an even higher level than anywhere in the past. So it's the same behavior as drugs, as alcohol. You need a greater high, and you get the greater high by taking greater risks, and the payback is therefore increased arousal. Uh, I just had a, a small thought, and that is, um, as it is with YouTube, we'll be aware of how the algorithms push us uh, in a certain direction. It makes recommendations for you. I'm convinced the same thing is happening with porn, that it is pushing you and directing you in directions that you have never thought of before it's it's opening up new avenues so there's also that dimension thank you i'd just add one thing i'm not a therapist i'm a philosopher so i can't uh, engage at some of this that these sorts of levels but uh, i do think that in terms of what's lying behind it you cannot get away from the religious philosophical transformation that there is in our society that if, a, if you lose a clear sense of what a human being is in terms of a normative identity, then all of these issues that Lisa is talking about, all these alternate identities, this is who I am, become very difficult to refute. The, the, if human beings are simply more complex animals, then whatever desire I mentioned in my lecture, whatever desire or inclination occurs in nature is natural. And therefore, to suppress that would be uh, to harm your, psych your psychological health and well-being. So th these, are, these are the ideas that have come to us through um, uh, postmodern and existential philosophy. And so pornography is just a, is a logical extension, and the more extreme forms are a logical extension of a denial of what a human being is. And do you want to talk about how church leaders should deal with and yeah, In terms of... of um, uh, pornography and sexual addictions that you mentioned in the life of the church. Um, I think part of the problem that you're describing is the collapse of church discipline. Because we live in a culture now that's increasingly uh, autonomous. People um, often resist church discipline. They will often resist church membership if they don't like something that they're told in church or just go somewhere else. And then they'll be received by that church. So uh, obviously, there's no perfect people in ministry. There's no sinless people in ministry. So we don't want to, to prevent uh, people from serving the Lord uh, if they are genuinely seeking to address and battling accountably uh, issues in their lives. You know? um, but uh, to put people into positions of Christian leadership or to have people out ministering to others when they're in unrepentant sin, when they are... When they are practicing all of those kinds of things in a, in a hidden way um, is the collapse of church. And I do think that, uh, that a, um, if somebody is known to be in some form of sexual addiction, they're not being helped, that it's not being addressed, there's not uh, repentance and a desire to change, then, then pastoral and church discipline does need to be applied. And if we don't have uh, church discipline in the life of the church as the family of God, um, the church can't survive, um, and uh, and then it will infect pa pastoral ministry uh, itself. You've got lots of 
pastors we've seen in statistically who are battling these issues, often who are not in accountable uh, relationships. So I think healthy, loving, uh, but also firm church discipline um, is critically important in helping one another. I mean, church discipline is a right and privilege. It's one of the functions of the church because it's a blessing to be disciplined. The church is a form of government. The Lord's table is an area that manifests the Lord's government. It, the church is a government, and it should therefore have a role in governing our lives, and we need to be ready to submit to that. So we need the help and the prayer and the support, but we need discipline. So we need the rod and the staff. So that is a recipe for self-destruction when those sorts of things are going on, and it's part of the collapse of church discipline that I think needs restoration. Yeah. Did, do you want to talk about that? Well, I had a 20-something-year-old in my church after I had ministered on love. and um, But he knows I, I take no nonsense. But I even embrace love beyond any of my irritations. And then he came out the following Sunday because I wasn't there. And then went to the elders and said, by the way, all these years, I've been a practicing homosexual. And it was the word from the Sunday before that made him come out, and he said, I need help. I'm just giving you now a practical situation based on my support for everything that, you know, Joe has said. So the next thing immediately is every leadership responsibility and role is out of it. While we begin to work with him and help him through what he needs to do. And he embraces it. He appreciates it. That he's loved, but he's been helped to get over it. So I'm just saying, it's real. What you ask is real. It's happening. But in most places, they will not even deal with it like that. Uh, and, and again, like you heard, the discipline is out. I Just quickly on what um, Lisa talked about identity. Um, the greatest tool of the, of the enemy, the devil, is to steal your identity. And that's what he tried to do with Jesus. The whole thing about the, temp the temptation of Jesus was about the identity of Jesus to cast a shadow over it. He didn't say he was the son of God. He said, if. When they use the word if, is a doubt. You know, it's always if. I'm trying to, you know, and the same thing is still doing today. Let me just go over after identity. If I can confuse the identity, take away the identity, I've got them all. So I'll say this to every one of us. If you lack confidence in who you are, who you are not will confide you. And many people have now been confided in the identity they are not because they've lost confidence in the true identity that God has given them. And so they're trapped and need to be set free. So I'm encouraging you, embrace that identity that God has given you and appreciate it for what it is. It might not be somebody else's identity. You might not be able to do what they do. Just do what God has asked you to do and in the identity he has asked you to do it. That's, what, that's all is important to him. Stop trying to be someone else. Be who he has called you to do, to be. Because a lot of this stems out of people just wanting to be someone else. Do what somebody else is doing. Measure their own success and ability and confidence based on what somebody else is doing. And if they're not like that, they see themselves as a failure. And they're trying to deal with that failure. It all goes back to that identity. Who is it that the Lord has called you to be? Appreciate it, embrace it, be content, and run with it.
But I also say this last one as well. If you're not content with what you have, what you don't have will contend you. And that's happened to so many people. Many have been contended because they're not content with what they have. And so remember the little you, the little fetus that I held up and the 250 questions over four sessions. It's all about trying to find out what went wrong with identity from beginning of birth. And so often it is something, whether it's the role modeling of the male, working long hours, but doesn't get on the floor and play um, train sets and, 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 and shoot in with little junior because long hours of work with a dad, a mother can never replace masculinity. It's not a criticism of parents. Parents try to do the very best that they can do. And I'm never setting out to be critical, but stuff goes wrong. And when stuff goes wrong, even the minister's child, where perfect upbringing, they will say to me at the beginning, when the telephone rang, dad would jump and would be gone to deal with the congregation. But I, little junior, learned to accept that. But on a Saturday, he never played ball with me, etc. And he was a fantastic dad. No criticism, but there were deficits. There were issues. And it will play itself out in later life. Identity. Identity. And that's really where it goes wrong. Identity. Thank you, Gary. Um, obscene Publications, Karis is the expert. Karis, um, who, who is a consultant for Christian Concern and hasn't had a chance to speak, but it would be great to hear from you. Thank you. Yeah, the Obscene Publications Act of 1959, it just gets ignored. Um, we responded, the Crown Prosecution Service, who need to be watched with an eagle eye, as they have a lot of moral corruption in them, to be honest. They set out to reform the prosecution guidelines on obscene publications recently on um, uh, depictions of obscenity and on the definition of obscenity. So the act is still there, but once you change the prosecution guidelines, it's a clever way of ignoring what happened. Let me tell you basically what happened. Some of our supporters um, responded, not very many, so it's over to you in terms of helping us monitor these things and and be proactive. Um, I think so many people think we've just lost the battle, let's just you know ignore this, but we shouldn't. How they, respond, they changed the guidelines was, um, it was around sadomasochism, and uh, to liberalize, in other words, to make it that you didn't have to prosecute virtually anything really, uh, and if all, all based on the idea that it's um, consent makes something okay. And also other types of extreme um, pornography, as long as consent was involved and it didn't involve children. Utterly disingenuous as far as I'm concerned. Um, and also they wanted to change obscenity to include um, so that hate crime would be counted as obscenity. Now you can work out where that's going. Uh, I won't discuss that now in detail. Um, but there was a lot going on in there that needs to be exposed some way or another. I don't know how you how you do that. Um, now, fast forward to uh, just last uh, October, November, um, CPS again being put on the spotlight by the very people who didn't stand up to them at the time. Um, there's a campaign called We Can't Consent to This, which is, there's a campaign, a women's cam campaign called We Can't Consent to This, which is women who've been in, say, Damascus relationships with men, 
and who've uh, learned that some other women have been killed in them, or that men in, in the criminal courts, defendants, were using the Fifty Shades of Grey defence for what they did to the women and why they're dead. In other words, they consented to some role play where they ended up playing dead. Absolute rubbish. And of course, the woman who's dead is not there to give a side of the story. So, but how did we get here? Then Harriet Harman, who's the MP who brought this amendment before the courts, actually went, had the cheek to go to the press and say, we want this to become, to become statute law, because at the moment we can only deal with it through case law. And we want it to be under the nose of the Crown Prosecution Service. We had done a freedom of information request to the CPS asking who else apart from ourselves had responded to the consultation on liberalizing the law on prosecution sadomasochism. CARE, the other Christian organization, responded, the British Board of Film Classification and some other film group that's supposed to be a censor but isn't. Where was Harriet Harman? Where were the MPs? They didn't say anything. Where was, the, where was most of the church? Um, the thing, law like the Obscene Publications Act only works if we all try to enforce it and if we pay attention. If not, it's a dead letter. So basically the answer is it's still there in the statute books, but it's over to us. Mm, very good. Two or three more questions? Yep, there's one here. And one at the back, yep. And one here, and one there. So that's four. Great. I have just two questions. My first question is... Um, <laughs> Um, asking for a friend is is extreme pornography a grounds for divorce? That's my first question. My second question is: Is it right for a married couple to watch porn together in order to add spice to the bedroom? Uh, okay. Uh, the first time I went to uh, Netherlands as a student, you know, uh, they taught us we were coming from Africa. Uh, you know, when you're in Africa, you don't even see any porn, okay? But when we <laughs> come there, you know, they said, you know, uh, you need to just see one. When you see one, uh, you will realize you have seen all of them. <laughs> that was the teaching. Yes, thank you. Um, I would just like to ask, really, um, the panel, because I don't think anything has been said from the front about the role of deliverance ministry and uh, exorcism, whether that's something that uh, is important in helping the person to actually be free. Hi. Um, I was reading a thing in the Times the other day by the chap from Fleabag, um, who plays a minister, um, but he was basically in real life promoting promiscuity and saying just how wonderful it is that we can all hook up and it's so easy and normal. Um, and just it's got me thinking about the different roles between men and women in that. And i just more aware, it feels like women are just going along with that because that's the way they get the love and attention. I've heard various comments like, um, I feel like I've got to put out on the by the third date or he won't take me seriously. Um, and that general sense that women need to be up for it 100% of the time. Um, and when you think about teenage pregnancies, um, abortion, STIs, um, single parenthood, it feels like women get the far worse deal. And but I, I never really hear anything like that in the, in the media or any 
note of that balance. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Okay. Um, Joe, do you want to talk about divorce and pornography and pornography and marriage? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, as a pastor, I mean, porneia, sexual immorality, I think um, uh, in a marriage relationship, if there is uh, one partner in it is habitually and is addicted to hardcore pornography, um, it will affect the relationship, and eventually that is grounds for divorce. I think it is grounds for divorce. I think it's pornea. I think it's, it's, it's uncleanness. It's sexual immorality. Um, uh, now, of course, if the spouse is uh, addressing themselves uh, to it, is uh, working on it, but I, I don't think you could force a, as a Christian pastor, I don't think I could force a, a wife to stay in a relationship with uh, a husband who was not addressing an addiction to hardcore pornography. It's, it's marital unfaithfulness. Um, uh, the notion, I think, of, um, of, of spicing up your marriage by watching pornography together, um, I think if pornography is right, wrong in one setting, why would it be right in another? Um, j just because... Sex is right in only one setting. Say again? Sex is only right in one setting. Yeah, yeah sex, obviously, sexuality, is the, the exercise of sex is only right in one setting, and therefore to basically bring, essentially... Um, people who are paid prostitutes. Let's remember that's really what it is, right? You've got people being paid to have sex in front of a camera. That that, that would somehow um, improve, the, I mean, these, uh, Gary will be the expert here. The idea that that will somehow bring about an improvement long-term, it may, it may titillate briefly, but it will not bring a, uh, a long-term improvement to a, to a sexual relationship that's struggling in marriage. So, but fundamentally, from an ethical, moral point of view, you don't take something that is abusing people and exploiting people and say, because we're using, because we're, we're using material that exploits and abuses people in marriage, therefore that sanctifies it and makes it okay. So I think that's my answer. Does anyone else want to comment on that? The reality is that's exactly what does happen. When the individual is viewing porn in cyber world, which is narcissistic, they inevitably will want to try to move it into the real world and try it out in the real couple relationship. That is actually what tends to happen. It's wrong at every level. It does not work. And so many, particularly females, are truly damaged and traumatized because it's her attempt to fight back to keep the marriage. I call it the, the Ann Summers thing. She'll dress up and swing from the chandeliers trying to say, whoopee, look at me. Look what I can do. Why do you want that over there when I can do this? And it will be exceedingly painful for her when two months later she realizes that he has gone back to the same behaviors because she, she can't fight and she can't win. And she will be extremely hurt um, because she's trying to fight something that is not really fightable. And it's disastrous for the relationship. It, 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 it's an inevitable encroachment that those doing it in cyber world will try and move it into the relationship in reality. Because the the, they lose sight of cyber and reality. Can I just say that this is it's a little bit of an aside, but again, it's another reality, where I gathered the men in my church for a time away, and we were discussing these issues. 
and there was a particular marriage that was struggling and the man is trying to deal with pornography or whatever to resolve it and what was the struggle in his marriage? The wife is going through menopause and so many things have changed because she's dealing with changing how they, and he's just like, man, I don't get this, man. Does, does that mean now I'm going to live like this <laughs> for the rest of our marriage because she's going through this? And he was going on and on. I don't even know where he came from. And I just told him, I said, listen, menopause is men pause, not men stop. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's telling you pause. I need to get myself to deal with this. It doesn't mean stop. <laughs> okay. And it was, it was shocking. It was an older man than me. And he looked at me and said, that's a big relief. I said, listen, you know, calm down. Before you start going to do something stupid, you know, and start doing this and doing that. And it was so simple that it's just a little counsel like that. Just helped him understand that, okay, you just have to understand and bear with her, understand what she's going through, and then walk it through. I just wanted to add that because at times there are little things like that that we don't deal with and can drive somebody where they're not meant to be. Sorry, and uh, uh, basically women here, we're just all bad porn, if we're honest. See, that's why Gary's comment about how unhelpful it is. Um, so sure, we could, all the females here can go to Ann Summers and get all the gear, whatever. But also because of watching someone else in terms of the object objectification of it. See, there's no way any of us women can begin to compete, in my view, in terms of some hot young thing who's 17 and uh, raging hormones and you, she just can't, you know, down girl, down. It's, there's no way any, whim, any woman can actually win against this craziness that's not even real, as you're saying. So I guess for, for um, I think it's really important just don't go there. I, like don't even start because what it does is it does stuff to your brain and then you live with all those images just like Kinsey uh, and, and you can't ever get rid of those images. So if you want to kill your marriage, just go down that route. So is, is that your answer to the last question about why do women put up with it? That sort of thing. Okay, why do women put up with it is because most, um, in fact, I didn't even get started on the damages of doing sex, like for youngsters as well as for people our age. Uh, and and it basically it is don't do it because you will pay. You might pay sooner, you might pay later, but yes, women do ridiculous things to hang on to. Let's see, who was it talking about women connect via, uh, in terms of emotions? Yes, yes, right. So. That is true. Now, even the younger things that are, you know, hot and swinging, whatever, because their biological clock is ticking, and for some of them, they do want children. So, who are they? Go who's going to be the father of their babies? So, yes, there has been a shift, but basically, women will put up with a lot for a chap, and so if the chap is wanting more, higher and higher demands. She'll try, and poor thing. So, and then you get the radical um, um, feminists who say, fooey on this, we can't win here. See, there are many issues going on here. Um, but 
Toby, you're dead right. Where is the church speaking in terms of women, particularly you'll pay? See, your chap, he might not pay, but you will pay. And in terms of, so women are comparing their body shape to something gorgeous on, and it's like, hold on, I'm losing. I'm a loser. So was it 80%? That was the stat that we read in terms of women who feel bad about their bodies. So yes, I think that I'm answering that as well. The new normal for women is lesbianism. Not women my age, but younger, like maybe under 30. Um, if you look at various data that we have in Britain, the, the, the NatSal survey and so on, and that, even that information is dated. And it's not just Britain, it's probably most of the Western world. Now, we know that there's some of the roots of lesbianism and some go deeper than others. Some of it is because there are young women watching porn, like we heard. Um, and objectifying themselves and others and all this kind of thing. The influence of pop culture, um, the BDSM world, that's so horrifying now that most young women have been choked, spat at, whatever, during sex, but especially casual relationships. That makes lesbianism look normal on the interpersonal level. I'm, I know it's not, but I've seen it happen. And I've seen young women in their 20s being groomed into it by older women who know what to look for. Um, and we need to recognize that. Something, I think it's something crazy, like one in five women in Britain under 30, is it, have same-sex attraction. And most people who've had same-sex attraction say they've acted on it some way or another. And that's a lot, and that's I know it's twice as much as the number of men of their peer group who have same-sex attraction, which is like one in 10. If that's not a wake-up call, I don't know what it is. We have to handle it very, very carefully. Um, I also think that this business of trans kids and of teenage girls wanting to be boys. Some of that is the effect of them watching gay porn. And of course, you've got to be very disturbed to do that. Um, but also, um, it's also about a new way of escaping hypersexualization. At least if you grew up under Section 28, as I did, you still taught don't have sex before marriage. I was actually taught that by non-Christian teachers at school. And I mean, I was taught it at church at home anyway. Um, but you're not taught... Um, celibacy or chastity or abstinence um, any longer. And I think that um, LGBT has become a way of escaping hypersexualization. So that's why I have a lot of sympathy for people who fall in for homosexuality and other things. The suicidality rate amongst our teens, the fact that now we have mental health nurses in our schools, mental health, uh, mental health of our young children at universities, all because of the hypersexualized culture. Women, um, I mean, the uh, women in lesbian uh, relationships. And I think, I mean, Lisa, playing that, the let's look at Taylor Swift's story. Um, let's pray that she becomes a Christian like Justin Bieber and Kanye, who at least are trying in the public space. We need to pray for them and, you know, see more of this. But um, she went out with John Mayer. We heard, his, we heard his comment on masturbation, didn't we, yesterday? That, that's Taylor Swift, so like the girl that everyone, all the girls want to be like. She's come out talk, talking recently um, in the last week or so about her uh, body dysmorphia, about her eating disorder. And we've got, you know, and, and so we've gone, I've gone from, again, watching my children grow up from eating disorder being a real thing in the schools, and I'm not saying that it isn't anymore, but if, if to gender dysphoria amongst girls in particular. Um, so that, that, that video of Taylor Swift is actually very vivid for what's happening to our teen girls. And she looks like the perfect one. 
so that you know in terms of how how they're all meant to look and 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 be and be on the instagram so what a world it is to navigate yeah so um we've heard a lot about therapy what about deliverance ministry elisha do you want to talk about that um, uh, I would use the, the, there's quite a lot of models and systems in the Bible. So, okay. so if you look at the story of Jesus, when Jesus, can you hear me? So while Jesus was, um, I think he was, um, there was this um, possessed um, spirit he came in contact with. And um, Jesus asked, what is your name? Or what, who are you? And he said, we are legion. Now, then Jesus knew the key. I knew what to do. Then he called for the spirit out and he ministered to that individual. Now the question is, Jesus knew what he was dealing with. He, have, he has the empowerment and the authority at that particular point. So the first scenario is for us to start looking at delivering people, we need to be led. God needs to be sending us to a particular location and say, look, I need you to go and deliver that person. So at that particular time, you are empowered. If you look at the story of Paul, Paul was about ministering to someone somewhere, and there was this sorcerer trying to block the message. And at that particular time, Paul turned around and rebuked that spirit. That's a scenario. Now, the question I wanted to focus on is, if you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. So if Christians, Christian brothers or sisters, approach us and say, look, I think I need deliverance. I think we need to start from the finished walk of the cross. It's very important because we can start going around praying for people without actually pointing them to the place what Christ has already done. Galatians 5 chapter 1 says, it is for this freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. So somebody is saying, I think I'm possessed. You need, they need to understand the finished work. Then we need to give them a plan as to what Bible study they should be reading. Because what we don't want to do is start saying, look, we need to cast out the spirit because they're already free. But they might be experiencing things they think, okay, is abnormal, but they should be looking at the finished work of the cross. That should be the first contact. Then having a Bible plan to tell them what is written in the word. Study that, meditate that, and pray those words. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that there's a, a genuine disagreement, especially amongst more conservative Christians, because they would say, look, I've got the Holy Spirit in me. I cannot... Um, be possessed by you know the demonic. It just it's just not true, and I think the thing is this: is that rather than get wrapped up in you know where are these things uh, are they living in someone or around someone? The reality is, is that if we give our life, if we give a foothold to the enemy, then those things can afflict us. Uh, you know whether it's putting thoughts in your mind or whatever it is, there is an affliction there. And so you know so there's two schools of thought, but I think you know the bottom line is is that when you know, um, the evil influence leaves an individual, it has to be replaced by something else. Otherwise, as we know, if an evil spirit leaves a person, goes out into the wilderness, and then it sometimes tries to come back in. And I've said that to many non-Christian clients. They go, oh, I know exactly what you mean. I gave up this, and then I ended up with this. And so the reality is, is that the Father gives us weapons in order to defeat the enemy. And we have to take out those weapons each and every day. And it's, it is about every day walking with the Spirit. It's about 
as the Christian rehabs tell us, it's about listening to Christian music. It's about having that fellowship. It's about that everyday walk. Because when we do those things, we are defeating the enemy a little bit, day by day. And so there may not necessarily be a dramatic falling over and ro rolling around and so on. But, you know, and that may have an instant uh, effect for somebody. But unless they've got that plan in place, the reality is, is that the enemy will seek to come back. So I think, you know, there is a place for both, a place for prayer. And sometimes people can feel instantly delivered, like the friend I spoke about and his deliverance from smoking. But then there has to be something else there. Um, and there are great organizations um, like LL. So a lady here, sorry, we spoke um, earlier on and she just said, look, you know, point us in, in, in you know, in our direction, because that's a retreat center. You can go there. You can have prayer as a Christian. You think, how is it as a Christian? I, I, I'm not free. Because that's a question that I, uh, many Christians struggle with, that I struggle with. And in fact, God desires us to walk in victory. He really does. Um, and it's, you know, so he doesn't want us to continue to walk in the wilderness. He wants us to enter the promised land. How we actually get there, there has to be a strategy. Like Joshua had a strategy. I, th I think um, there's one thing I probably want to say in Colossians, the letter. Every time I look at the letter of the Colossians, I always ask questions that there are simple things we need to practice here. Paul was saying, put off the old man and put on the new man. The word put off, Colossians chapter 2 of us, or Colossians chapter 3. So there's a process as a Christian, you need to remove the old man and put on the new man. And the new man is a new man in Christ Jesus. And that's by studying the word. The question I keep saying to many Christians is, you cannot replace the word. The word is the principal foundation for building an effective, practical Christian living. Prayer has its place, but there's a word. The Bible says in the beginning was the word. If the word was in the beginning, the word is the only thing that can hold us. Praise the Lord. I really do believe in deliverance, but as I've mentioned, about 50% of the people who come in my direction don't have the same worldview as I do. And I think that is a mission field. But what I have noticed that is that they can be helped to replace the pain within themselves or to fill the void that is there. If they fill it with the Lord Jesus Christ, that's wonderful. But I've seen if they, if they find their mission, if they go in a direction that is meaningful to them, even that can overcome some of these addictive processes in their lives. So I don't think we should, I don't think we should, um, I don't think we should force them into a spirituality that they don't own until they can own it themselves and it's genuine from them. I think we need to work with them to be able to uh, fill the void within themselves. And I believe that that will lead them to Christ in many cases. Um, the Bible says that we're not contending against flesh and blood, principalities and powers rulers of the darkness world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And I think most of the time the church underestimates exactly what the Lord is telling us about that. Look, I live my 32 years of ministry, most of it in warfare, up till this week. I can't even share with you 
the battles I face spiritually for Christian concern. Not even with Andrea or anybody in CC. You can't comprehend it. When I'm in warfare, my wife has to leave the bed and begin to intercede because she can hear my conversation in the spirit realm. Contending demons. Just this week gone. Trying to destroy human lives. Spiritual wickedness from the spirit realm trying to destroy people who are living. And at times I want to sleep and the Lord will wake me up, take me away in the spirit, and I begin to pray and fight for souls here. And it tells me, I don't, I, I'm not, don't share that with them, but you wrestle with them. You have to get to a level to understand that all we're talking here today about sexual immorality, there is an evil spirit massively behind, behind it that does not sleep and does not slumber. And if you think that minus God, you can totally destroy it, you're, you're deceiving yourself. And that's why the Bible says that he didn't just say resist the devil and he will flee from you. What's the first thing he said? Submit to God. Minus God, ultimately you might be relieved from this addiction, but the devil will get you somewhere else. Because he knows that, okay, might have done that. And that's why I like what Mike said. You must do all of that practical stuff to help people, but you must walk to them to say, ultimately, you need to connect to God because he'll come after you again another way. And, and that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm saying that we must, no matter which way we try and help people in these issues, you must bring them back. Like somebody said to the cross, you must bring them back to let them know that your resources of its own, no matter how much you develop those resources, cannot work ultimately except you tap to the source himself, to God himself. And that's how, I've seen many people like that, oh, we got him off that and it's something else. It's into something else. So I just wanted to put that to say, please don't underestimate the might of what is behind, what is gripping these people. And you need to wrestle at times beyond just passive prayer. You need to go into the place of serious isolation and crying to God, help, help this person because what grips them is beyond what they themselves can comprehend, you know. I love that question because it helps me to put back everything that I've shared with you back into, into context. I work with Christians and non-Christians and I say very much to the Christians, my role in your life is, is this amount when you finish the program with me, the work is just not done. This is what is yet, yet to be done, and that's the Holy Spirit. So I'm quite clear on my role. It is therapy, and I'm trained in therapy, and it's not pastoral, it's not Christian. But I say, in order to finish the work properly, you need to look at a Sozo, a Freedom in Christ, a LL Ministries. You need an inner healing where you let the Holy Spirit now put his finger on the stuff where the tentacles have reached to in order to do a much more holistic um, healing in your life. And, and my role is really is that bitty bit. But the great counselor does, whoa, that much 